Hi, I'm Erin Bingley from the St Albans Morning Congregation. Our first Bible reading today is from Isaiah 51 verses 1 to 11. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, but I blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion, he will comfort all her waste places, and will make her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Listen to me, my people, and give heed to me, my nation, for a teaching will go out from me, and my justice throw light to the peoples. I will bring near my deliverance swiftly. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will rule the peoples. The coastlands wait for me, and for my arm they hope. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and those who live on it will die like gnats. But my salvation will be forever, and my deliverance will never be ended. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people who have my teaching in your hearts. Do not fear the reproach of others, and do not be dismayed when they revile you. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my deliverance will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to cross over. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall attain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our second reading is from Philippians chapter 4 verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Judea and I urge Synthesy to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing 
the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be digitally with you for only a few more times, actually. It's getting close, and uh, so that's a really great thing. What difference does it make that our citizenship is in heaven? You remember that's how the Apostle Paul ends chapter 3 of his letter to the Philippians, a letter that's written uh, to the privileged elite of the Roman Empire, the citizens of Philippi, who enjoyed the high privileges associated with Roman citizenship. No, I cack for them. Uh, they operated under a different judicial system altogether. And, and to these elites who had come to share in the gospel with the apostle and sisters and brothers across the empire, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Our ultimate loyalty, the the personal heart investment that we make more than any other, the, the tribal allegiance that we give with a commitment and ferocity more than any other, uh, it's not our ethnicity, it's not our political convictions, it's not even our family, our citizenship is in heaven. And the question is, what difference does that make? Well, it might lead you to become escapist. To be so sick of the misery of all the other warring allegiances and factions and tribes uh, that play out in our world that you just, you just want to get out and, and perhaps in the meantime withdraw, find a holy huddle and snuggle up. And in fact, earlier in the letter, the apostle says something that might encourage that stance. Do you remember? He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is better by far. I remember early on uh, as a Christian reading that for the first time and wondering whether I also should desire to depart, to just opt out, uh, until a good friend made the point that it was one thing for a person nearing the end of their lifespan, currently rotting in a Roman jail, which had a fatality rate of way too high, having lived his life fully for the Lord, and altogether a different thing for a 20-year-old to read those words. No, you shouldn't take... Paul's words written in a context of extreme challenge and assume they work for you in the same way. But there's something else that leans in a different direction from opting out as well. You see, what does Paul say after affirming that our citizenship is in heaven? Well, what we expect him to say is, yep, our citizenship is in heaven and that's where we really belong, that's where home really is, it's where safe and good and strong is, and I just can't wait to get there. Except that is precisely what he doesn't say. Instead, what he says is, our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. What follows directly on from the fact that our deepest belonging is in heaven is not that we want to go to heaven, but that we wait with expectation for heaven to come to us, to come to earth, the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what a Saviour. Not just a Saviour of souls, forgiving sins and healing hearts, but a Saviour of bodies. He will transform our weak, feeble high blood pressure, weary-lunged, virus, 
susceptible bodies which are often enough embarrassing and even humiliating so that they are like his utterly glorious body that defeats death and walks into locked rooms and is utterly animated and empowered by the Lord, the spirit of life. And it doesn't stop there, you see. Jesus doesn't just save our bodies. Oh no, because our bodies are just the tip of the created iceberg, the starting point of the use of his power, which will be exercised over all things, every animal, every bacteria, every plant and herb and mountain and sea and river and cloud, every molecule of carbon dioxide, all things will be rightly ordered and serve Jesus. That's the kind of saviour he is. That's our heavenly citizenship. Not that we go to heaven, but that heaven comes to us and to the whole created order and puts things right. And the question is, what difference does that make? Well, obviously, uh, you stand firm in the Lord, don't you? As Paul puts it in chapter 4, verse 1, the next verse. I mean, why on earth would you go anywhere else? What other ground for your life? What other pleasures or temptations or ideology or hurt or pain could possibly draw or drive you away from this Saviour? On what grounds could it possibly make sense to shift from this saviour? But of course, that standing firm has to take concrete particular form in this life. And so Paul goes on to outline some of the contours of that shape. He he starts with the small, the very particular and, and, and familiar picture of relationship conflict. He ends with the broadest canvas of them all. And in between, he gives us the resources we need to live as citizens of heaven in a world that more often feels like the other place. We're going to look at each of those three points. We're going to actually take them in reverse order. So first then, whatever. You'll see in verses 8 and 9 at the end of the passage some of the strangest verses in the New Testament. Uh, Whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just or pure or pleasing or commendable and so on, if there's any excellence or thing worthy of praise, then... Think about these things. Did it strike you as we read them that that just sort of comes a little bit out of the blue? Is this just the sort of mental equivalent of how your grandparents used to tell you that if you can't say something nice, then don't say anything at all? Uh, You know, just think nice thoughts as, as the apostles sort of run out of actually substantial things to say. No, I think it's far richer and far more significant than that. First, think carries with it a lot more freight than just having some thoughts. The the word is not the usual word for thinking. It's a far more intense version. It's, It's reflect on, dwell on, take account of, come to terms with, reckon with, wrestle with whatever is true and honorable and just and commendable and pure. Invest even in those things. But second, I want to bring that into connection with our citizenship and particularly the eager expectation that ultimately our citizenship will be the only citizenship, that from heaven will come a saviour who will fix everything up. Do, Do you see the link? What does it mean to say that Jesus will exercise such enormous power that 
everything will be rightly ordered to him, serving its maker the way it was designed to do. Well, what it means, of course, is that everything then will be true. There won't be any more falsehood at all. That everything will be honourable. There won't be any more dishonouring of other people or things. That everything will be just. There won't be any more injustice. Everyone and everything will get its due. And so on. In other words, what I think Paul is doing here is this. This world still bears the fingerprints of its creator. What theologians call God's common grace. He restrains the fullest effects of sin and brokenness so that there are shoots, just little green shoots of the true and the good and the beautiful in our world. There are things that are commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. They are still there from creation. And what's more, at some level, they are an anticipation of the new creation. The Redeemer, fixed up, saved by the Saviour of creation, whom we have a firm expectation will come to us from heaven. The shoots are there. And Paul says, cultivate them. Grow those things. Understand deeply and take account of and invest in and grow those things in all of your spheres, in your own personal and inner life, amongst your family and your friends, in your church, in your vocation, the the contribution that you make to the good ordering of the world by the work that you do, Uh, among your neighbours in the civil society of which you're a part, your your apartment block or street, your sporting team or book club or professional association, everywhere you are, in all of the world, invest in these things. I I find these verses uh, a remarkable window into a life well lived. To be an outstanding exponent of a secondary citizenship here Precisely because our primary formative citizenship is in heaven and ultimately here will become the same as heaven. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the Saviour comes and makes it all good. And our business, the business of our lives is to be cultivating the shoots of that now. That he will ultimately make into a glorious garden to construct now what he will ultimately build as the great city of God, to find the good and the pure and the just and make more of it. Some time ago, uh, someone at CCRW uh, put a challenge to me. Uh, It was at the time that we were working really hard to invest in leadership development in the church and inviting people into various programs to do that. And And she said to me, look, that's great and it's important that we do that but CCRW will really be hitting its stride when it does leadership development not just for roles in the church but for our roles in the world. When we invest and coach and train our members not only to exercise a leadership in church life but in all of their life. And she's exactly right. It's what Philippians 4, 8 and 9 are getting at. 
And as we emerge from the strangeness of these past two years, I think this is a central part of what CCRW needs to become better and better and better at supporting and strengthening and uplifting one another in precisely this. Which leads to point two, resources. Because, of course, lots of the time what we find in the world is not truth but falsehood. What we find in the world is not honour but disgusting and disgraceful stuff. Not just and pure and commendable behaviour and patterns and structures but miserable and corrupt and oppressive ones. And, of course, not just out there but also in our own soul, in our own words, in our own relationships. And so the question comes, how, how do you keep at it? How do you keep investing in these green shoots of the age to come, year after year, decade after decade, for a whole lifetime of expectant investment? And the Apostle gives us some crucial and powerful resources that all flow from the great reality that our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there that we are expecting a saviour who will make all things good. You, you see how it works, verse, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. The Apostle says, instead of complaining, grumbling, whinging, instead of being crushed and overwhelmed and despairing, rejoice in the Lord. Now remember, this is Paul in a stinking Roman jail cell saying this, hardly an environment full of what is true and honourable and just. But Paul knows something fundamental. There is never nothing to rejoice about, no matter how bad things are. The fact is that the world is not yours to save. It is his. And he's really good at it. He knows precisely what he's doing. And your uncertainty about that says far more about you than it does about him. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's from there that you're expecting a saviour. He's promised he will come. And so rejoice in that. Notice, of course, that it's in the Lord that you rejoice, not necessarily in the circumstances of life. And it's so easy to lose sight of this big picture, to lose perspective when the darkness of the world dominates your horizon to the exclusion of all else. But in the Lord, according to his own promise to us, we have an infinite well of joy available to us. Second, verse 5, let your gentleness, the apostle says, be evident to everyone. The Lord is near. One of the temptations when you feel overwhelmed is to lose gentleness and to slide into harshness. When you feel out of control and depowered, the temptation is to burst out, to be so convinced that your cause is good and that it's really important that you end up inadvertently doing that which is not just in the name of justice, which is not excellent in the name of excellence. And the Apostle says the Lord is near. Not, I think, in the sense of near in time, that, that is, that his coming is soon. I don't think the Apostle had a view on that particularly. Rather, in the sense it is always close at hand. He knows his world. He knows what he is doing. And in particular, he never doesn't see us. Uh, you never get to act in secret, actually. And that can really help us 
not to slip into roughness and brutality and forsake gentleness. But third and most crucially, uh, what Paul urges is praying with thanksgiving, verse 6. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Whatever falsehood and unworthiness and misery you might be facing, Paul says the bottom line is don't be anxious. Don't let worry dominate you. You you may feel and, in fact, be powerless to change things. So often we are. But God is not powerless. And so instead of anxiety, we Christians have prayer. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, now this is not Paul trying to pretend that he's some uh, mental health expert. He's He's not dealing with... Um, clinical depression or something like that. He's speaking at at a different level from that. He's saying in the ordinary business of life, there is something that can guard us, keep us from becoming overwhelmed by worry. Because it's as we pray, as we make our requests known to God, that the peace of God which passes All understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It it passes understanding, that is, for those who don't know the power and promise of God who will come to transform all things and order them to Jesus. Apart from that peace, peace of mind and heart make no sense. Apart from that hope and expectation, peace of heart and mind will always deteriorate into hardness of heart and mind and harshness of heart and mind towards others. But it's as you pray, it's as you make your requests known to God, as you leave things with him, his peace can guard your heart and mind from the descent into unworthy harshness and hardness. It doesn't make you happy, doesn't fix everything up right now, but it enables you to get about the business once again of shining as a light in this world, investing in whatever is true and honourable and just. Which leads us to the final point where the particular issue at hand is conflict. Verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul wants these two colleagues of his actually to reconcile with one another. And of course there's, there's a great deal to say about this theme of personal reconciliation. Uh, The Apostle is very clear that it is the Christian way, not slandering or pretending or avoiding. Uh, And the specifics of his instruction, that they be of the same mind, recalls for us in those exact terms the, the general instruction that he gave earlier to have the mind of Christ. The self emptying, self sacrificing humility. An obedience which led to death, even death on the cross. The kind of humility of mindset and posture that is absolutely essential to make reconciliation possible. And notice that when needed, this is even done in community. The apostle invites someone else in to help them do that. But I want to highlight another factor. You see, One of the ways that we make reconciliation impossible is to forget that our citizenship is in heaven and instead to relate to others on the basis of other citizenships. 
of other loyalties. So let's, let's give some texture to Euodia and Syntyche. Okay, let's not just leave them as names. Let's put some flesh on those bones. Perhaps one of them is deeply vaccine hesitant and the other is a nurse working at a clinic tirelessly, exhaustively to administer vaccines. Or, or, or go for another scenario. Perhaps one is an environmental activist and the other works in the coal mining industry. Or, or one is ethnically Jewish and the other is ethnically Arab. One is a struggling single mum and the other inherited millions and millions of dollars and lives in a mansion. How on earth can these pairs possibly not drift away from each other and even hate each other? It's only by activating the reality that their mutual citizenship is in heaven, both their own and the other person's, that Jesus is their fundamental loyalty. Jesus is their basic point of identification and belonging. Ahead of any other identity element whose lordship drives all of their investments of energy and commitment. Do you, do you see? If you don't have that in place, then it will all fall apart. Nothing can possibly hold people together outside of their little tribal loyalties and loves. Those particular loyalties will become defining loyalties, defining who's in and who's out for you, who belongs and who can never belong. But that's not the way of Christ. Why should Euodia and Syntyche be of the same mind in the Lord? Because that's who they are. They are in the Lord. He is their citizenship, defining and ordering all of their other commitments. And when that is the case, nothing can tear them apart. Do you see why the church should be the most bizarre, freaky community of all? any in all of human history and experience. People who on any other terms could not possibly get along. People who have such vastly different life stories and experiences and investments of different ethnicity and social background and wealth with every political conviction under the sun bound together by a citizenship that transcends every one of those identity markers, not eliminating them, but ordering them so that they don't function to exclude. Now, do you think that'll be difficult from time to time? Do you think that's hard to make that work? And, and now we're going to read the passage forward, right? We'll need to rejoice in the Lord, even when we have difficult and challenging relationships with others. We'll need to be gentle, knowing that the Lord is near. We'll need to swap our anxiety for prayer and God's peace as we try to function with these very different people in relational cleanness. And it will make a great deal of difference if we don't reduce them to their difference, if we don't decide that all they are is their politics or their wealth level or that ethnicity, but instead that whatever about them is true and honourable and just and pure and commendable, that we remember those things as well about the person. Because our citizenship is in heaven. That is who we are. That is the belongingness and the loyalty that defines and identifies and constitutes us ahead of any other identity marker. And it's from there that we are expecting a saviour 
the Lord Jesus Christ, a saviour that I need as much from my sins and death, every bit as much as someone else needs from their sins. A saviour who will order all things to his glorious, gracious lordship. And it's in that citizenship that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we lift our hearts to you in praise and thanks and worship. Our citizenship is in heaven. That is our home. That is our belonging. That is our loyalty. That is our identity. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Come and order all things so that they are pure and true and just and excellent and right. And as we wait, in the meantime, we pray that you would so fill us with your spirit that we would know this hope and live in this hope. Invest in this hope. And we ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.